Each week when you come to church, you'll see that we have a New Testament reading and an Old Testament reading. And, and that's for a very deliberate and intentional reading, uh, reason. And that is because the Word of God is a beautiful whole. Uh, I, I try to describe it like this. The Old Testament is like the blank pages of a colouring in book and the, the New Testament is like the colour. And so you always see the fulfilment, the promise and the fulfilment of both. Now, you might already be asking, like Simon asked, what on earth has 1 Timothy chapter 2 got to do with our Bible reading today? Everything. Everything. In fact, I hope as you leave here this morning, your heart will thrill um, with the most radical, surprising, shocking news of all that is contained in 1 Timothy 2 um, and that Job himself saw uh, in Job 9 and 10. So I'm going to read from Job uh, chapter 10, uh, from verse 1 through to verse 22. And brothers and sisters, this is God's word. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? Are your days like those of a mortal or your years like those of a man that you must search out my faults and probe after my sin though you know that I am not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hand. Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you moulded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You gave me life and showed me kindness and in your providence watched over my spirit. But this is what you concealed in your heart and I know that this was in your mind. If I sinned, you would be watching me and would not let my offence go unpunished. If I am guilty, woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head, for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. If I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion, and again display your awesome power against me. You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger towards me. Your forces come against me wave upon wave. Why then did you bring me? Out of the womb, I wish that I had died before any eye saw me. If only I had never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom and deep shadow. To the land of deepest night, of deep shadow and disorder, where even the light 
is like darkness. Well, please keep your Bibles open um, to Job chapter 9 and 10. Uh, But before we look at God's word in more depth, let's pray. Lord, it's a somber word that we come uh, to this morning as we come to listen to your counsel. But Lord, we know that as we just sang, that your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Lord, may you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to see the truth of your word this morning. May we hear your voice speaking to us through it. So be with me as I preach, Lord. May I be faithful and true. And may I also say things, Lord, in a way that honours you and builds us all up. Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands, depending completely on you. We are hungry, we are thirsty. So please, fill fill the bellies of our soul with your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been mentioning uh, some of the great hymns of the past. Uh, And someone very helpfully reminded me of a classic this week, which I think is especially apt when we consider the message of Job. It's the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Few people are nodding. Unfortunately, not enough. It should be some that is familiar to us all. If you're not familiar with it, it goes like this. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? who unto the Saviour for refuge have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. And then it goes on to say this. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The final verse, though, ends on this really triumphant note. It says this, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not, desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavour to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. It's an incredible hymn. And apparently it was one of the songs that were sung by the American soldiers in the American-Spanish War before they went into battle. When times are tough, what do you sing? What do you say when the world around you is caving in and you feel like you are surrounded, metaphorically or maybe like the American soldiers, literally on every side? 
you could definitely do a whole lot worse than sing the songs, sing, sing the words of that particular song. How firm a foundation. Because it's such a great summary of the promises of God. As we've been seeing the past couple of weeks, Job's world has not only fallen apart, but his friends have become his enemies. And they are mercilessly accusing him, well, actually both him and his children, of having sinned. And that is why he is suffering and they say they have died. What would you say in response if your friend said something like that to you if you were in Job's situation? It would be difficult not to take it personally and respond emotionally, wouldn't it? How dare you say something like that? It would be just so devastating. But what makes their condemnation even worse is that it's grounded in seemingly orthodox theology. A way of understanding God which, especially on a first reading, seems eminently reasonable and maybe even right. As we know from the end of the book, though, they are all wrong because the Lord himself says so. Each one of the three friends is rebuked by the Lord and we're told that they haven't spoken about him what is right, which is a timely warning and reminder for us all, isn't it? Sometimes you can be absolutely correct in what you think about God, about your understanding of him and his ways in the world, but be completely wrong in your application. You can be orthodox, but in practice a heretic. Job's response to Bildad's first speech then can be divided into two distinct parts. The first is in chapter 9, and it addresses the deficiency in Bildad's theology. And the second is in chapter 10, and it's where Job turns his complaint to God himself. I know that this requires uh, more than a bit of concentration and effort, but can I just encourage you, friends, it is totally worth it. God has inspired these words, has he not? He's inspired these words to be written down for our benefit. And especially when we are suffering, what Job says to us here offers tremendous insight and comfort. We start then with chapter 9 and why Bildad's theology is deficient. Why he is correct in theory, but a heretic in practice. Or as Job could have said, sorry mate, but your God is too small. You see, as we saw last week, Bildad has some really brutal things to say to Job. Things like all of his children died because God in his justice was punishing them for their sin. That's brutal and incorrect. And it's not just the, re- not the, not just the reason why they're gone, Bildad says. Bildad says it's also the reason why you've lost everything. You've lost your wealth as well as your health because you sinned. But rather than respond emotionally or aggressively, the really surprising thing is that Job's response is to engage even more deeply in the mistaken theology of his friend. 
And what he says in essence is this, mate, I know that there's truth in what you're saying, but you haven't gone far enough. You think that you're taking the high moral ground by appealing to the character of God, but your view of God is too small. If you're really going to understand my situation, then you're going to really need a much bigger understanding of God. Now, there's a lot to cover in this chapter, and I've tried to break it up into six bite-sized pieces to make it more digestible. And can I just say, probably God's humbled me. I had this amazing outline for you, which would have made this really easy to follow. If you're taking notes, you can take it, um, but otherwise you can just sit back and listen. Let me try to go through them relatively quickly as to explain to you why um, Job is saying that build-out is wrong and why his God is too small. Number one, because God is too smart. He's a lot smarter than Bildad is making out. Job says in verses 3 to 4 of chapter 9, Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted, or literally, who has hardened himself and come out unscathed? You see, as we once again saw last week, Job knows that no one on earth, including him, can be reckoned as being righteous in God's sight. Blameless and upright, sure. That's what God himself said of Job. But not righteous and pure, because no one is without sin. And because no one is without sin, no one is smart enough to contend with the Lord. As we're going to see in just a minute, we see but a part of the picture, whereas God perceives the beginning from the end. Now, you may, particularly if you've been to uni, you may have even seen this diagram of the blind men all clamoring over the elephant to describe the divine. And this is um, an analogy used by secularists and particularly atheists or at least agnostics to try and say, well, all you religions, you only have a piece of the puzzle. You're all blind. And some of you, you Christians, are describing God in the ear and it looks like a big fan. Some of you uh, Muslims are describing the leg and it looks like a big pillar. Some of you are describing, uh, whether it be the Hindus, for instance, the side of the elephant and it feels like a wall. You are all but grasping just a piece of the picture. You've heard this analogy before? It's the most arrogant thing. You could ever hear. Because what it assumes is that the secularist alone sees. Only the secularist, only the atheist that doesn't even believe in an elephant knows that the whole elephant's there. You see how arrogant that is? What Christianity says is that God has revealed himself. He's taken off the blindfold. We once were blind, but now we see. Following on from this, God is too sovereign. Verse 10, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. I was reading in my quiet time the events of the Exodus earlier in this week and I was blown away once again by the Lord's awesome power. There's nothing or no one that is outside of his sovereign control. He even hardens Pharaoh's heart, the most powerful king in the world. Proverbs 21 one, this is a good verse for you, particularly if you want to pray for our political leaders. 
Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like he pleases, as a watercourse. Even the most powerful ruler on earth cannot resist the sovereign power of God. Not only is God smart and sovereign, though, but he is also, if I can put it this way, reverently, too sneaky. Referring to the Lord in this way obviously doesn't do him justice, so just give me a little bit of wriggle room. Because what I mean by sneaky is not that he's slippery or duplicitous or anything like that, but what he says in verse 11. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? Answer, no one. There was a book written back in the 1950s by J.B. Phillips with the title, Your God is Too Small. I never actually read it. I had it sitting on my bookshelves for years and years and years and then I just lost it. But I love the title. Your God is too small. Because that's how Bildad is operating in terms of his understanding of God, especially in relation to Job. He has this, as we've been seeing, don't be put off by this term, he has this transactional theology, which just simply means that God will always reward the righteous and always punish the wicked. It's a transaction that's taking place. But as we saw last week, so clearly from Psalm 73, that's just not the case. Indeed, sometimes as you grow up and experience and live in this fallen world, it seems like transactional theology is working in reverse. That the wicked are prospering and that the righteous are the ones that are doing it tough. That as Psalm 73 says about the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. And if, like the psalmist, you only look to the conditions that we experience in this life, you can feel like saying with the psalmist this, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. There comes a point where you should feel the weight of this, where you say, why do I go to church? If just from a human point of view, why come? Because my life is, I think, more difficult than those that just go riding on Sunday mornings. That's how it can feel and seem sometimes for those who trust in the Lord. For God's ways are not our ways. And they often take a direction which we choose in life, which we would never choose for ourselves if we could plan it. Job says in verse 13, God is so sneaky that he doesn't have to restrain or turn back his anger. He can be perfect in its expression all the way through. Even mythological creatures, I think, like Rahab, whom the pagans worshipped, would cower at his feet. Or as C.S. Lewis says of Aslan, it's that great line, Aslan is not a tame lion. You see, just take a look at what Job says next in verses 16 to 19, because God is simply too strong. 
Bildad might think that his theology about God is correct, but he doesn't fully appreciate just how powerful, just how mighty God is. Verse 16, even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my words for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who will summon him? Now, as we all know, Job actually does get the opportunity to experience this very thing for himself. It's going to be a few weeks away before we get to this, but starting in chapter 38, the Lord speaks to Job out of a storm. And what Job finds is that the Lord is both more terrifying and at the same time more merciful than he could ever have imagined. He doesn't crush Job as he had feared, but nonetheless, the experience leaves Job in no doubt that he just should have shut up and said nothing to begin with. The Lord says to Job in verse 1 of chapter 40, have a, if you've got your Bibles there, just turn over to chapter 40, and I'll read to you what happens from verse 1, just a couple of verses. Verse 1 of chapter 40, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him, accu- let him who accuses God answer him. And then the Lord And then, sorry, then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. It's incredible, as we've been seeing, because God never tells Job the reason why he was suffering. He never tells him, like we know, the events of chapter 1 and 2, And what happened in the heavenly realms with Satan? God's answer to Job is, I'm sorry, who are you? I'm God, you're not. That's it. That's his answer. And that's actually the answer, can I say, and I need to slow down at this point and not be so passionate. That's the answer to all our suffering. We don't know, we don't need to know the reason why it's occurring. You just need to know who the Lord is. That he is righteous, that he is holy, and that he is good. But he's not a tame lion. Bildad had tried to rebuke Job in chapter 8 by showing how shrewd God is. That surely he would never reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. But Job comes back at him and he says in verses 21 and 24 this, you have no idea how shrewd God is. You have no idea. For he is shrewder than you and I could ever imagine. Verse 21, although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is, it is all the same. That is why I say he destroyed both the blameless and the wicked. When the scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls in the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it's not he, then who is it then? That's a deep and profound theological insight. 
And it exposes the superficiality of Bildad's extremely shallow transactional theology for what it is. The ultimate problem with Bildad's whole argument, though, is that it's not just, well, it's just not kind. There is no love in it at all for, well, I think either God or especially his friend Job. Indeed, Job says to Bildad this in verse 30. Even if I washed myself with soap and my hands with washing soda, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. Job's not talking to God here. He's talking to his friend. Bildad is intent, he's saying, on declaring Job guilty. So intent that even if he was to wash himself completely clean, you would throw me in the sewer just so that you could be correct. Because anything less than Job's condemnation doesn't fit with Bildad's deficient and simplistic understanding of God. Because Bildad views God from a merely human point of view. And here's the key. He doesn't realise how separate God is. Just take a look at what Job says in verses 32 to 35. And here's the hint. This is where 1 Timothy chapter 2 comes in. And I hope by the Spirit of God will send a shiver down your spine, particularly if you recall what we read a little earlier from the Apostle Paul. Job says, starting at verse 32, He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon both of us, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear, but as it stands with me, I cannot. What an incredible theological insight from Job in putting his finger on the most important aspect of all. Bildad assumed that someone like Job could rock up, he could present his case to God anytime he pleased. How foolish. Job says to his friend, you have no idea. Every now and again, someone you know, says something like, if only God would speak to me directly. Or, if only the Lord would give me a sign, then I would believe. But not only does he never have to do your bidding, as though you or I were doing him a favour by believing in him. But can I just say, you definitely don't want the Lord to speak to you face to face. Why? Because you wouldn't survive. You don't know who you're talking to or about. It would be like standing before an atomic blast and thinking you're so cool because you've got sunglasses on. Nothing would protect you. When the Lord appears to people in Scripture, it is always in a mediated form, whether a burning bush or a storm, something like that, maybe a, a crushed whisper. 
Because God is being merciful. He's making it safe. And even when the Lord simply speaks to the people of God audibly, do you know what they do? They plead with him to stop. You can read all about it in Exodus chapter 20, the great chapter about the giving of the Ten Commandments. In verses 18 to 19 of that chapter, we're told this. When the people say, uh, saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. You don't want God to speak to you directly. You don't want that. This is why what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 is so incredible and so shocking. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Isn't that shocking and exhilarating? And then he goes on to say, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. You see, Jesus, in Jesus, we have the very thing that Job longed to look for. That just, that's what we need, he said. If if only there was something like that. And God, God had it planned all the way along. Because Jesus is both fully God and fully man, he can stand between us and God and act as the perfect bridge or perfect mediator or perfect arbitrator. But even deeper than that, when he was crucified upon the tree, his body became the act of atonement which both covered our sin and turned away the Father's anger. It's what theologians call expiation and propitiation. Covering of sin, turning away wrath. That's all it means. That's all. When Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, he achieved achieved both. It's what Job longed to have, but is the testimony which wouldn't be revealed until the proper time, until the fullness of God's plans and purposes had come to be. A plan of salvation which the Lord had in mind, I think, before the creation of the world. Bildad, though, understood none of that. His limited transactional theology, and here's the key, had had no room for a a crucified saviour. For the innocent being punished for the guilty. Because surely God doesn't reject a blameless man. Well, actually he does. Because the fundamental problem with Bildad's theology is that it, it views our relationship with God not on the basis of what God can do, but of our own performance. That if we're good, then the Lord will reward us. But if we're bad, then we'll be punished. In other words, the problem with transactional theology is there's no room for grace. It's a theology of works. That's why Bildad and his friends are so proud. And it definitely has no room for a righteous or pure figure one who is truly righteous, one that is truly pure, one that is truly without sin, and yet would offer his life as a ransom in our place. Do you see? And so Job's response to his friend is, brother, your understanding of God is too small. 
Now, Job could have left things just there. Uh, He has masterfully, I think, responded to the accusations of his friend. But in chapter 10, his focus shifts. And he takes his complaint straight to God. He knows he's got nothing to lose. And so he speaks out in the bitterness of his soul. And this can seem pretty jarring, especially what you've just heard Job say so eloquently, especially at the end of chapter 9. But you have to remember that just because Job asks the right question doesn't mean that he understands the right answer. He's living before the time of Jesus. What you and I see so clearly, he doesn't. He knows that he needs most of all a mediator, but he has no idea at this point that that's exactly what God is going to provide. It's just going to take about 3,000 years. And when you don't know that Jesus is the mediator, then can I just say briefly this morning that you're going to ask yourself maybe one or possibly four questions. And that's what chapter 10 is about. And they are this. Why are you against me? Verses 1 to 3. Why do you watch me? Verses 4 to 7. Why did you create me? Verses 8 to 17. And then finally, if you don't know Jesus as your mediator and you suffer like Job suffered, then the number one question that you will ask yourself when you are truly honest with yourself and facing your pain is this. Why don't you kill me? Because if you don't know Jesus as your mediator, you don't know hope. You've literally got nothing. These are incredibly negative, but if you don't know the ransom that Jesus offers as our mediator, then they're the questions that you will ask, especially when you suffer. You'll think, first of all, that God is against you. There's no way he could be for you because outside of a knowledge of the suffering saviour, you're going to have exactly the same theology as Bildad. Or maybe you've got no theology of all. Maybe you're your own God. But it's still you that's saving. It's still your performance that's making the difference. Remember Julie Andrews' character, Maria, famously sings in The Sound of Music? We all sing along with it, but it's the worst theology of all. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's transactional theology. I deserve this. That's what we'd all like to think and believe. And that's what we all would if you didn't know Jesus as your mediator and you didn't know the sacrifice of atonement or the ransom that Jesus made at the cross. That's what you and I would think. You'd think that whenever something bad happened to you, God must be against you. Following on from that, you'd ask with Job, why, don't, why do you watch me? That's because God is responding in a purely transactional way to your behaviour, whether it's good or bad. So why does he pay you so much attention? Job says in verses 6 to 7, Why must you search out my faults and probe after my sin, though you know that I am not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hand? Again, Job is never told what happened in heaven between the Lord and Satan. 
And he's also not aware of Satan's complaint that the Lord has placed a hedge of protection around him. Job will never know or understand just how much the Lord is truly watching him. All that Job perceives and understands is that God must be trying to search out the sin which lies latent within him. Even though he knows he has never cursed God but has been blameless and upright, a man of integrity, from a human perspective, it's exasperating, especially when he believes that his life is almost over. So what's there to be gained? As we saw a few weeks ago from Psalm 121, the Lord is watching over Job, but not in the way that Job might think. All of which leads us to two final questions. And they are, why did you create me? And why don't you kill me? It sounds shocking, almost blasphemous questions to ask, particularly when you read them in Scripture. But if you can't see that Jesus is the answer to Job's desperate plea at the end of chapter 9, can I just say they're perfectly reasonable questions to ask. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed earnestly that the cup of judgment would pass from him. Jesus wasn't a masochist. He never wanted to suffer for suffering's sake. Why did he go through with it all then? Well, it wasn't just out of a sense of duty because he wanted to obey the Father's will, although he did want to do that. No, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12 that it was for the joy set before him. That's why he endured the cross, scorning its shame. It's because he knew that his suffering had a divine purpose. Why did you create me? It's one of the most profound and pertinent questions we could ever ask. And once again, the answer is intimately connected to the man who is God. Who paid the perfect ransom for our sin once and for all. Because when we put our trust in Jesus, we receive the free gift of eternal life. Which means that we also know the reason why we were made. To know him. To love him. To worship him. To serve him. That's why you were created. For the praise and the glory of his holy name. If you don't know the salvation that Jesus offers though, then the final question Job asks is the most logical. And that is, why don't you kill me? I mean, if there's no meaning or purpose to our existence, then why not just get it over and done with? Because these few short years of life on this earth are only going to end in death anyway, and there'll be a fair bit of suffering in between. This kind of worldview is called nihilism, or nihilism. And it holds that life has no morality, with no loyalties or purpose, except maybe the purpose to destroy. Kind of like the Joker in the Dark Knight series. Probably the most famous nihilist or nihilist of all was Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche once said this, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. To live is to suffer, to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. Unfortunately for Nietzsche though, he completely rejected God and in the end went insane. 
For without God, there can be no meaning, especially when we suffer. Now, you may as well do, if that's the case, if you think, well, I'm going to reject God, I'm going to reject his offer, I'm going to reject his meaning, I'm going to reject his offer of salvation, I'm going to reject his mediator, I'm going to reject his ransom. Well, maybe I'll just do what Job's wife suggested and curse God and die. How incredible it is, though, that in Jesus we can know the mediator that Job so desperately wanted. We actually have, friends, a firmer foundation than Job could ever have imagined or dreamed. For we have an advocate with the Father who not just is fully human and fully divine, but has offered himself as a ransom in our place. And that means that no matter what happens to us now, we can be assured that no one can snatch us out of Jesus' hands. We're safe and we're secure because we're saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've spoken to us through your word this morning. Um, It's a, a timeless word, Lord, as well as a timely one. We all struggle and we all suffer in many ways. Some of us physically, some of us relationally, some of us psychologically or mentally. How good it is, Lord, to know that you love us, that you sent your son to die for us, that in the proper time, he became our mediator. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper together today, Lord, may you remind us of this glorious truth, this shocking good news that a blameless, pure and righteous man suffered in our place. Lord, we thank you for healing us. And we pray that you would strengthen us to always trust you and follow you, especially when times are hard and difficult. In Jesus' name, amen.